0: All right, let's open up to Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13, and we'll jump into our study here. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this place they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day saying in David, today after such a long time, as it has been said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and opened to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So Lord, we pray as we continue to follow the line of reasoning here in Hebrews, and as we consider today what it is to rest, what that means, what what you're wanting us to uh, lay hold of. As you're speaking to us about this rest, Lord, help us to do that truly. Help us to be living in that place of rest that you desire. Not drawing back, not turning back, not drifting back, but being steadfast in our commitment to you. That's our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. So we're picking up here in the fourth chapter in the middle of the author's warning to his readers not to repeat the sins of their forefathers by failing to continue to trust God. And the author is, as we've seen, he's using the ancient Israelites as uh, an example to that, that uh, group of Jewish believers that he's writing to at the time, he keeps going back to them, using them as an example and essentially saying, look, don't do what they did. So what happened with their uh, ancestors, of course, is that they trusted God to lead them out of Egypt, but they did not believe him to take them into the promised land and subsequently died in the wilderness. And so for his readers. He's not wanting. To see this kind of thing. Happen to them. So they have seemingly. Believed in Jesus as their savior. But now are drifting toward unbelief. And considering. A return to Judaism. So his concern is that perhaps. Some of them. Uh, have. Have. Come short of a true saving faith, his concern is that maybe it 's been just perhaps an emotional commitment rather than a, a deep, genuine uh, commitment of the heart, and that they because they 're actually contemplating a, a return to the old system he 's concerned that maybe they haven 't really embrace salvation in the truest sense. And so he, he uses this uh, terminology here about having come short of it. The most reliable evidence that a person is truly saved is continued faith in and obedience to Jesus Christ. You see, that's the most reliable evidence. If I'm, if I'm looking to something other than that as, as evidence for my salvation, I, I might be looking at something that's really unreliable. The, the, the only way to, to have just that you know, absolute certainty that our faith is genuine is that if it's current, if, if my faith is uh, you know, something less than it w- was initially, if I believed in Jesus in a much more intense way in the past and now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of wavering as, as to whether or not I, I'm still believing in him or, or trusting in him, then there, there's no real security in that kind of a position. So to turn from Christ, having once followed him, or to live in open rebellion to his word can indicate that the salvation that one thought they had or claimed to have had was never a true salvation. It was something short of true saving faith. And that's the concern of the author, that that maybe their faith was something short of a true saving faith. And, And this is a hard reality, but it is a reality. Uh, there are people all over the place who have been in church for years and who go through uh, the religious motions and who would identify themselves as Christians. But the, the fact of the matter is they don't have a true saving faith. They've come short of it. They've never really come into that commitment to Christ and that real true um, acknowledgement of him being really the lord of their lives and uh, you know quite frankly we hear stories all the time of of this kind of thing happening i can't tell you how many times i have spoken for example to women who uh, are now divorced but who met their previous husband at church were convinced because of their church attendance and involvement in the life of the church and maybe even the ministry of the church and so forth, they were convinced that this person was a Christian. And so they went ahead and they married them, assuming that they were going to live happily ever after for Jesus, only to find out, sometimes shortly after, that there was no real genuine commitment to Christ. And now this Man that they married, thinking was, you know, God's gift to them, uh, has no interest in Jesus, has no interest in the faith, has no interest in really following the Lord, seeking the Lord, or serving the Lord. And here they are, they're, they're in a situation like that. That is, I have heard that story numerous times from a variety of women over the years. And occasionally you hear it, you know, from a, a man about his wife as well. But the point is, It's possible to come short of true saving faith, to have something that looks externally like its salvation, but the fact of the matter is it's really not a true salvation. And how do we know? Because it doesn't last. It doesn't stand the test of time. True faith stands the test of time. And so this is the concern of the writer to the Hebrews that their faith, which is being tested right now, because as I pointed out before, they're going through challenging times. They are living through uh, exclusion from their community. They're living through the loss of uh, position in society, and in some cases, the loss of their belongings and so forth for, uh, through persecution. They're living in a time of discrimination against them because of their faith. And all of this is is causing them to rethink whether they really want to continue to follow Jesus. And since they're rethinking that, the author is questioning whether or not their salvation is legitimate. You know, it's interesting how these Passages as we, as we gather each week and as we study how God will use, you know, his word to just speak directly into someone's life. So after the first service, a man came to me and he said, he said, I am the person that uh, I'm just thinking about walking away from the Lord. And he said, everything you said today was God speaking right to me because I came in here today thinking, I can't do this anymore. There's too much difficulty in my life. There's too much trouble. There's too many challenges. It's too hard to follow Jesus. But on the other hand, I know, where else am I going to go? And that, of course, is the dilemma. Where else are, are we going to go? Remember, there was that point where Jesus uh, he's saying these, these hard sayings. He says to the, the crowd, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And people are like, oh, what is he talking about? This is, this is too much. We can't handle that kind of uh, speech. And so it says at that point, many who had been following him departed from him. And Jesus gathers his apostles Around him, and he knows that they're troubled by the sayings as well. And he says, Are you going to leave me also? And Peter responded in that classic response He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. And that's what we have got to remember. Where are you going to go? Sure, there's difficulty, sure, there's hardship, sure, there's uh, challenges. There can be persecution and all of these kinds of things can be going on that might give the devil an opportunity to come in and tempt us uh, to go back to our former lives or just cool it with your, your commitment to Jesus, you know, just tone it down and, you know, go to church once in a while and all that's fine, but you don't need to take this so seriously. Uh, the enemy uses these kinds of challenging circumstances to tempt us in this direction. But this is nothing new. This is something that every generation of Christians goes through. Every Christian person goes through this to some degree at some point or another. And the important thing is that we persevere, that we endure, that we keep holding on and trusting. So again, this is the emphasis. This is what he's uh, wanting them to really get hold of and and permanently lay hold of so here in the verses that we read he speaks of this rest that god is making available and offering to his people and so let's look at the rest for a moment so he says therefore since a promise remains of entering his rest there's a promise of of entering his rest what is he talking about well I think the word rest here is a, he's using it metaphorically for salvation. And the rest is ultimately and fundamentally a future thing, yet the future has penetrated the present. You see, what we have to keep in mind is that there is an end to all of this. This is what we tend to forget. We tend to forget that life is going to come to an end for every one of us. And and for the person who's looking for ease and comfort right now and to alleviate the suffering and the difficulty that accompanies faith in Christ, that person is not remembering that it's all going to come to an end for every single one of us. This past week, I was just found myself thinking about um, the fact that You know, it all does come to an end. I was thinking about my friend Phil Pachonas, who on Tuesday will have, uh, he passed away one year ago. Tuesday will be the one-year anniversary of his death. And I was thinking of Steve Mays, who uh, was also a friend of mine who passed away a few months back. I was thinking of Pastor Chuck, who 18 months ago passed away. I was thinking, you know, not to say that it's limited to that, but I was thinking of, you know, here are three men that I knew very well, that I was very close to, that I was involved in their lives deeply and served the Lord together with them. And I was thinking, those guys are there. They, they're, they're in heaven. They've entered fully into the rest that is being talked about here. And so when he's talking about this rest, he's, he's ultimately talking about the fact that there is this eternal state of bliss and, and uh, glory that we are one day going to arrive at, but there's also, of course, the present aspect of it. So believers enter God's rest through faith in Christ now but we will not experience the fullness of the rest until we go to be with the Lord or the Lord comes to establish his kingdom here on the earth. So our present rest is that we are not working to save ourselves or to try to earn God's love or favor. We are resting in the finished work of Christ. That, that's, the, that's the present rest. Uh, sense of the rest that he's talking about. Now, remember, the Jews are all about working. They're all about the law. They're all about laboring under the commandments and in doing so, trying to please God. So they're, they're thinking about going back to a system that has no rest involved in it. Uh, there, there's there's never a way under that system to come to a place of complete security because you never know if you have done enough. And that's the way it is when you have any kind of a works-based salvation. You can never rest, you can never have complete security because you can never have the confidence that you've actually performed well enough. So we have entered into his rest, and that we are no longer working to save ourselves. We're, we're trusting in what Jesus did. Jesus saved us. It's his um, work that he did on our behalf that we are resting in, and we are no longer trying to earn God's love or favor. We have God's love and favor. So that's the present, but then, like I said, the future rest will be when our labor here on earth is done and we enter into that kingdom and that intimate eternal relationship with God that we were created for. So now the author is, he's talking to them about this rest and he's afraid, he says, that they might have come short of it. And then he, he reminds them of the fact that their ancestors, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, the ancient Israelites, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it, for we who have believed do enter that rest. So they had the same message back in those days, the, pointing back to their fathers who came out of Egypt. They had the same message, but it didn't benefit them because they didn't believe it. And so, what he's saying is, don't let this happen to you. You know, sometimes people rest in having heard the message, not having believed it. Some people are thinking that, well, because they've been uh, the beneficiary, maybe of a Bible teaching or something like that, that that well, that's sufficient. I've I've heard that, I've read that, I've studied that, I know that. That's great. Do you believe it is the bigger question. Because it's not hearing it that's as important as believing what we hear. And so there is a rest, he says, for the people of God. Now, as he goes on in the passage that we read, he uses the term Sabbath to describe this rest. And again, this is extremely relevant in the context because these are Jews, and for Jews, both then and now, uh, one of the most revered concepts in Judaism is the Sabbath. And, and for them, there would have been the thought, you got to put yourself in their position. Going back to Judaism at this point seems extremely attractive. Because in Judaism, you have all the security. You have a temple. You have a priesthood. You have these uh, sacrifices. You have the Sabbath day. You have all of these things that you can just go re-engage in. As a follower of Jesus, you have these you know, little uh, groups of believers that are being excluded from the larger society that are being persecuted and all of that. So they can just go right back into the establishment. And for the Jew, it's like, oh yes, the Sabbath. The Sabbath was so important to them. The Sabbath is so important to Jews that the Mishnah, which is the rabbinic commentary on the Torah, has no less than 24 chapters on the Sabbath. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background on um, things Jewish. Have you ever, as a Christian, wondered why the Jews don't see what we see when they read the Old Testament? I mean, you, you who know the Old Testament, you know the prophecies, you know those clear passages, most notably um, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. I mean, could it get any clearer that these are all talking about Jesus? I mean, we, we can see it so clearly, and, and we're perplexed as to, well, why can't Jewish people see this? I was in Israel some years ago, and I was talking to uh, a Jewish man there, and I asked him if I could read him a passage of scripture, and I read him Isaiah 53, and I asked him this question. I said, where do you think I just read from? And he said, oh, it's obvious that was from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I said, well, actually, that was from Isaiah. That was your prophet, Isaiah. But, he, but he, he couldn't see it. Now, here's the explanation as to why it's not as clear to them as we would think it would be. It's, the reason it's not as clear is because they cannot take a biblical text and read it and take it at face value and interpret it themselves. It has to be understood through the lens of uh, rabbinical theology. And so... There is the rabbinical literature. It's all contained in what's called the Talmud. Perhaps you've heard of the Talmud. The Talmud consists of um, various rabbinical writings, but the first section of the Talmud is the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is the rabbinical commentary on <laughs> the rabbinical commentary on the Torah. But the Mishnah in the mind of the Jew is the way to understand the Torah. You can't understand the Torah unless you you read it through the lens of the Mishnah. And then after the Mishnah, there's the Gemara. The Gemara is the rabbinical commentary on the Mishnah. And so it just goes on and on. So you've got all these layers of of traditionalism that prevent a person from just getting right to the text and being able to look at it and interpret it themselves interpret it themselves so when I say to this Jewish guy uh, well that's Isaiah you already told me it's obviously speaking of Jesus you know what he says well I have to go ask the rabbis if that's right or not so you see he doesn't have the liberty I mean he could of course but he would be breaking protocol Uh, he doesn't have the liberty to just read Isaiah 53 for himself and say that's talking about Jesus I'm going to put my faith in Jesus he has to go to the rabbi and say well what is this talking about So, when it comes to the whole idea of the Sabbath, it was the Mishnah that produced 24 chapters on the simple command that you shall do no labor on the Sabbath day. (laughs) They came up with 24 chapters on that one simple command. And I'll tell you, it's there that you see the, the wild imagination of the rabbinical writers. So, remember also, one of the greatest controversies between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day was over the Sabbath. Jesus was in conflict with the religious leaders over the Sabbath. It was his refusal to accept and abide by their interpretation of the Sabbath that motivated the Pharisees to try to kill him. But here in the passage, in verse 9, Where he says there remains therefore A rest for the people of God The word there is literally Sabbath There remains therefore a Sabbath For the people of God So what is he saying? Well first of all let's understand what the Sabbath Was Truly intended by God to be Number one it was to commemorate God resting from creating the universe In six days the Lord Made the heaven and the earth On the seventh day he rested And therefore we were to uh, remember that, or the, the Jews were to remember that later um, when the law was given to them. So it was to commemorate God resting. Secondly, it was to give the people of Israel a day of rest. The, the rabbis, like I said, they, they turned the Sabbath into this extremely burdensome thing. Jesus said, you guys don't get it. The Sabbath was made for man, not the reverse, Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. It was made to be a blessing to man, but they had made it a burden to man. Jesus disregarded their view of the Sabbath, and he said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath myself, by the way. So secondly, it was to give the people of Israel a day of rest. But thirdly, it was to point prophetically to the rest Messiah would bring to his people. So here's the truth of the matter Jesus is our Sabbath. And for them who are thinking we need to go back to the old system, we need to go back to the old ways, we need to go back to the Sabbath, the writer is saying Jesus is our Sabbath. The whole Sabbath was pointing to Him. That's one of the reasons why the Sabbath is not included as binding anywhere in the New Testament. In the New Testament, all of the, and when I say New Testament here, I'm speaking primarily of the, of the book of Acts and the epistles, people have argued, they try to argue for Christian observation of the Sabbath from the gospels. They say, well, in the gospels, you know, Jesus observed the Sabbath and so forth. Yes, the gospels historically are still in the context of the Old Testament. They're the transitional period. Jesus is establishing the New Testament. When we come to Acts and the epistles, then we're in the new period and it's, it's in, in that area where we never find the Sabbath as being spoken of as binding. All of the other nine commandments out of the ten, Sabbath being one of them, all of the other commandments are repeated, reiterated as binding in the New Testament. The New Testament you find... Um, the, the command not to engage in idolatry, you combine the, uh, or you find the, the command to honor the name of the Lord, uh, children are to honor their parents, no committing adultery, stealing, covetousness, all of those things. They're repeated in the New Testament, but you never find a New Testament passage that says, keep the Sabbath. It's not there. That is why somebody like Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. the Apostle Paul, would write things like this. He wrote to the Colossians, he said, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So you see, Jesus is our Sabbath. So when you meet that Seventh-day Adventist who says to you, why aren't you keeping the Sabbath? Here's what you tell him. I'm on a perpetual Sabbath. Because that's what we are on. Receiving Jesus puts you in an eternal Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath, Paul says, was a shadow of things to come. It was talking about something greater, Christ is the substance the sabbath was just the shadow so we're resting in Jesus now again in the context these poor Jews are thinking oh we need to go back under the law we need to go back and keep the sabbath the author's saying there's a there's a sabbath for the people of God and this is it he who has ceased from his own works and that's what the gospel message is You cease from your works. You cease from trying to save yourself and you let God save you. And God saves you. That's the only way to be saved, obviously. You let God save you and you enter into that rest. So just as he has been comparing Jesus with everything that came before and showing that Jesus is better, so here he shows that Jesus is is better than the Sabbath because he's the fulfillment of it. But he also, if you noticed when we read the passage, he also made reference to Joshua. For if Joshua had given them rest, verse 8, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. So the author has shown that Jesus is superior to angels, he's superior to Moses, he's superior to the Sabbath, he's superior to Joshua. The point is, of course, all of these things spoke... They they all were telling of the greater thing that would come. Jesus is the greater thing that would come. He is the better Moses. He is the better Sabbath. He is the better Joshua. And so since this is the case, verse 11 says this. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Let us be diligent to enter that Sabbath. Let us be diligent to enter his rest. In other words, he's saying a similar thing to what what Peter would write in his second epistle. He's saying, make your calling and election sure. Make sure you're really saved. Make sure you're really trusting Christ. And you're not just... Being religious, you're not just going through the externals of religion. Make sure that your confidence and your faith are in Jesus. And not only make sure that they're presently in him, but make sure that that's where your confidence remains. And then he says this, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, I want you to notice something. How many of you are familiar with that verse right there? For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two of the sword. How many are familiar? Show me your hands. Okay. So, right. Good. You're familiar with that verse. But I would imagine that most of you, most of us, most Christians, I think, are familiar with the verse, but they have never really seen it in its original context because when we think of that verse, when we when it comes to mind or when we quote it to somebody, what we're usually doing is we're usually um, quoting it in you know just in reference to what the word of God is, and it's okay to do that. Uh, you can preach great sermons on the power of the word of God and so forth from this passage. I have done it. I intend to do it in the future, next week, as a matter of fact. But, <laughs> but what I want you to notice, what we usually miss because we isolate the verse, we usually miss the actual context. The actual context of this statement is judgment. That's the, the first application of it. You see, notice again, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. What he's saying is, look, you need to take heed to this, you need to be careful, you need to be diligent, because God's word is true, and what he said stands, and he will judge those who turn from him that's what he's saying in the passage his word is living and powerful what he has said he means in many ways you can say what God has said is who God is some people want to separate God from his word and they say things like well you know I believe in a God who is love, but I don't believe in a God who will judge. Well, that's an attempt to separate God from his word. You can't do it. God and his word are are so connected, they're inseparable. Because remember, the written word has come from the living word. Who is the living word? The living word is the second person of the triune God. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the word. So it's impossible to separate God from his word. But there are those even today, and I would say that there are many today who are wanting to do that, who are attempting to do that, who are disregarding what God's word says. Well, uh, and you know, I, I hear this all the time. I was talking to a friend some time ago and in the conversation as they were, as this particular person was, you know, going in a direction that wasn't a good direction and I pointed it out and I challenged them and they said, well, you know, I just, I just believe that God is love. I believe God is love too, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't judge. It doesn't mean that everything else he said isn't um, true. Of course, we have to understand his love in light of all of his other attributes. So the word of God is living and powerful. What God says is who he is. It's what he means. And disobedience is fatal, is what the author is saying. Because the word of God is living and powerful. And so as we close... Two things. Number one, God's promises are true, but equally His warnings are real. Let's not fall into the trap of just, you know, glorying in the promises of God but ignoring the warnings of God, or, or trying to uh, dismiss them or, or maybe downplay them in some some way. No, both are facts. His promises are true but his warnings are real. And we have to accept that. For those who trust Christ, the promise of entering his rest is a reality, but for those who reject Christ, the promise of judgment is also a reality. It's not a pleasant reality, but it is a reality. And so for us, as we gather we have to take all of this very seriously because as I said earlier, we all have an appointed time of departure from this life. And we all have an accountability before God. And as we read here in verse 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must Give account. Wow. Think of that. We must give account. There's a day coming when every human being will give an account to God. And the only thing that will stand in that day is God's word. You know, we see people today on all kinds of different levels just trying to negate God's word, trying to just remove it from the hearts, the minds, the the sight of people. Let's just, you know, we don't want to even think about it. A friend of mine who's an attorney was talking to me about the recent Supreme Court decision and telling me a, a little bit, telling us a little bit about uh, Kennedy's, um, you know, his judgment on it, his perspective on it, and he, of course, talking about the issue of marriage. And there he... Uh, He referenced, uh, I think, um, he referenced Confucius, and uh, somebody told me that Plutarch was probably the other, the Roman philosopher, orator. Those are the two people he referenced to support his view of marriage. Of course, he didn't reference the Bible because it wouldn't have lined up with his view of marriage. But you know, like we said before, whether it's this issue... It doesn't matter what the issue is, God will have the final word, and everyone must give an account. (laughs) And so since everything is naked and open before the eyes of him to whom we must give account, we must give account, we need to make sure, because the word of God is living and powerful, because what God said is reality, because what he promised he will do We need to fall into line under those truths. And finally, there is a rest. That's the beauty. There is a rest for the people of God. There is a rest for the people of God. And listen, only the people of God can rest. You know, those who are rebelling against God, those who are turning away from God, listen, there's no rest, there's no peace. You hear stories of people like, "Oh, you know, I, I had so much turmoil, and I was so, uh, you know, I was always feeling guilty and condemned, and and then I, I just threw off all of that belief in God, and oh, I, I feel so good now. I'm at rest. I'm at peace. No, you're not. That's such a lie. You can't be. No one's at rest. There's no peace for the wicked, <laughs> says the Lord. There is no peace. And, you know, the reality is everybody labors under some sort of a burden and there is no rest from those burdens. And it's not just religious people that labor under burdens. Irreligious people labor labor under burdens as well. Because, you know, everybody has a code of conduct. Everybody has an ideology. Everybody has some standard that they try to live up to or conduct themselves uh, according to, and, and you know, in some cases it's completely secular, it's just this group of people that you uh, have held in high respect and you, you wanna impress them so everything you do is to win their approval, you're right there. There's no rest is you're not sure if they're gonna approve you. You're not sure if you're dressed the right, right way. You're not sure if you uh, have the right car. You're not sure if you're listening to the right music. You're not sure if you're uh, whatever. The list goes on and on and on. And we, we just live in those kinds of states. There's no escaping it. The only place you can find rest is in Christ. Because when Christ accepts us and gives us rest, that's all that matters. And we come out from under all of that other bondage. And of course, we're freed from the religious element of that kind of a thing as well. And so... As I close today, my question is to you. Do you have that rest? Have you entered into his rest? Or have you come short of it? Are you still trying to work your way to God? Are you still trying to win his love, his favor? Maybe it's just because you haven't understood his grace, but you need to lay hold of his grace. But maybe some are saying, well, you know, I'm not even considering his grace. I'm just going to be the best person I can. There's no rest there. But there's rest in Christ as we put our faith and trust in him. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weighed down, all of you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. Make sure you've come to him. Lord, we pray that you would give us that confidence that we are resting in nothing other than you. And Lord, draw us close to you. And Lord, if there are other things that we're trusting in, whether they're religious or whether they're social or whether they're emotional or or whatever. Lord, we know that there's only true rest in you and through you. So draw us to yourself today. And Lord, I just pray for any who maybe have actually come short of a true salvation. They're here at church. They go through the religious motions, but there's no real relationship. There's no real transformation. There's no real change that's taken place in their hearts and their minds and their lives. And Lord, you love them and so draw them. Show them that today so that they can be where they need to be. And Lord, anyone who's trying to appease their own conscience or to impress a group of people or whatever and laboring under that burden. Lord, show them that there's rest in you and draw them to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.